0: Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to continue our series through Genesis, but I'm beginning a new mini-series within the series that I've entitled Joseph from a pit to a palace. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful to be moving away from Jacob. Jacob was difficult to deal with, but now we're going to look at Joseph, which is a much more uh, exciting and uh, really inspiring account of one of God's servants. Um, this morning we're going to be in chapter 37, and this is where we'll see I get this title, From a Pit comes from, because Joseph, the son of Jacob, will in fact be thrown into a pit, left for dead, and then, as we'll see in the weeks to come, through no other means than what can be ascribed to the very providence of God, Joseph is elevated to the second in command and the power the superpower of the universe, Egypt, and he's used there in a palace to bring salvation not only to his own people, but to the world. And if I could give an overarching theme of this series that we're going to be in for the next 13 weeks, all the way through the second Sunday of December, here's what my overarching theme would be. God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And that comes directly from the last chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, Joseph says to the very brothers that threw him in a pit, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I don't know about you, I know there's things going on in our lives, things that we experience, that we encounter, difficulties, hardships, and needed to hear this truth this morning, God means it for good. God will accomplish and fulfill his purposes. Now as a story, the story of Joseph contains all the elements one would expect in something that's captivating as a tale. But it's not just a tale, it's truth, it's real, it actually happened. There's jealousy and there's deceit, there's lust and there's lying, there's slavery and there's slander, there's injustice and there's forgiveness. And because of the incredible elements of this account of Joseph's life is so engaging, It's caught the attention of even modern storytellers today. For instance, the famed Broadway composer Andrew Lloyd Webber turned this story into the Broadway production Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And what we'll see here is that this is, in fact, a powerfully compelling story. I've entitled today's message A Robe of Destiny. A robe of destiny. You see, because this story begins with Joseph being portrayed as something of a pampered son, who's thrown into a pit, and then some passers by purchase him, and he ends up in Potiphar's house. And then from Potiphar's house he goes to prison, and after he's in prison, he's promoted to the palace where he's the prime minister. And as a preacher, I love all the (laughs) peas. But it's not just because of the peas, and it's not just because of the, the intriguing elements, there are some great truths and principles that we can learn from his story. There's much we'll learn. We'll learn how to overcome envy. We'll learn things like how to face adversity, how to resist sexual temptation that's thrown upon us, how to plan for the future, how to forgive those who wrong us, how to dispel our doubts, how to have faith in God's promises, and how to recognize God's providential care even in the midst of suffering. But as compelling as the story is, as as, uh, didactic as as it is with these elements of instruction and principles, I'm excited about the story of Joseph because the story of Joseph is ultimately about God. We see in Joseph the character and the nature of God. Again, God meant it for good. God accomplishes his salvation. God fulfills his his purposes. God protects his people, and God provides salvation from destruction. You know, the covenant blessing that came to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, was this. Through you and your seed, your descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Joseph is, at least in part, a fulfillment of that, because in his position in the palace, he does, in fact, bring salvation not only to Egypt and not only to the Hebrews, but all of the nations of the known world. And what we're going to discover as we see God all through the life of Joseph is this. There are numerous parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. In fact, the well-known scholar and Bible teacher A.W. Pink has identified 101 parallels between Joseph and and Jesus. And we'll see some of those parallels even today in our text. Now, before we launch into the text and this series on Joseph, I think it'd be important at this juncture, as we've been in Genesis all year long, to remind ourselves of the context of this account of Joseph's life. The, the greater context of the book of Genesis and even the greater context of the entire Bible. You see, the Bible is God's autobiography. When someone writes an autobiography, it's what the author wants you to know about themselves. And the Bible has been written through inspired human authors by God so that we would know something of who God is. It's God's autobiography. God has written to us, even in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, we see God is creator. He's created the universe. He created all that exists. And then you move to Genesis chapter 2, and the focus goes in a little bit deeper and a little More clear on the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of humanity. And we see that human beings have been created as the apex, the pinnacle of all of God's creation. But you move to chapter 3, and these humans that have been crowned with glory, these humans that are the apex of His creative work, that have the very image of God stamped upon them, they have disobeyed God, they have sinned, they have broken His commands. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have really the thesis for not only the book of Genesis, but the thesis for the whole Bible. And that is that God would send a rescuer, that God would send a redeemer. And so from Genesis chapter 3 on forward throughout the book of Genesis and all 66 books of the Bible, that's the story, that we have a humanity that is lost, that is fallen, that is separated from God, but God in His love and His grace has sent a redeemer. And this is the context of the story of Joseph. God is sending a redeemer. So with that as an introduction, let's look at Genesis chapter 37. We're going to read the whole chapter up front. So you follow along in your Bible as I read out loud. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "'Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf.' His brothers said to him, "'Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us?' So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words." Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. "'Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock.' "'And the man said, they have, all, "'They have gone away, "'for I heard them say, "'Let us go to Dothan.' "'So Joseph went after his brothers "'and found them at Dothan. "'They saw him from afar, "'and before he came near to them, "'they conspired against him to kill him. "'They said to one another, "'Here comes this dreamer. "'Come now, let us kill him "'and throw him into one of the pits. "'Then we will say that a fierce animal "'has devoured him, "'and we will see what will become of his dreams.' But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, "'What profit is it if we kill our brother "'and conceal his blood? "'Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites "'and let not our hand be upon him, "'for he is our brother, our own flesh.' "'And his brothers listened to him. "'Then Midianite traders passed by, "'and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit "'and sold him to the Ishmaelites "'for 20 shekels of silver.' They took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brethren and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. A compelling, thrilling story, right? Now, I would remind you, Bible students, one thing I've told you before, one of the things we look for when studying a passage of Scripture is repeated words or phrases. And I don't know if you noticed the word I was trying to emphasize to kind of point that out as we were reading it was the word robe. Robe, this word is repeated multiple times in this chapter, and I believe the English Standard Version uses the appropriate word here, translation, in our modern vernacular because the word coat that's often used in other translations, we, we kind of don't understand the full extent of what that word means. A coat is kind of like a dinner jacket. A robe, we know, kind of stretches all the way down, and certainly this is what this would have been. Something went all the way down to the ankles. Further, it says it's a mini-colored or multicolored robe, and that word really just means it was ornately decorated Here is this robe that was crafted by the Father, and it's given to the Son. There was something significant being communicated in this word robe about Joseph and about what his father's intending for Joseph, Jacob. It was an indication that Joseph was an appointed leader. This word for robe here is only used in one other place in the entire Old Testament Bible. It's in 2 Samuel 13 of Princess Tamar, again, identifying royalty with this robe. Now, we can understand the flow of the narrative of this chapter by considering three thoughts about the robe, the robe of destiny. The first one is this. With this robe, we see a designated position. There is with this robe that Jacob has given his son, Joseph, a designated Position. Verse 3 says, now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Jacob made this robe, made this coat, this jacket, especially for Joseph. Now, one thing we need to remember as we study Genesis 37 is redemptive history. That's the focus of the chapter. This is not a chapter on child rearing. The didactic of this chapter is not about, you know, parenting techniques, that we can certainly glean some principles about that. It's not about, and I've heard some sermons and read some sermons that only focused on how Jacob was a bad dad or how Joseph was a bad son. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to show something else that's altogether more important. The point here is that the robe is a visual aid for us that declares something to us that was special about Joseph. There's something unique about him. And by giving Joseph this robe, Jacob is setting him, him, him apart. He's formally appointing him to a position of leadership in the family. And he bypasses the older brothers to give him this position of authority, this position of leadership. We saw last week Reuben disqualified himself by, by defiling his father's bed with his father's concubine. We saw several weeks ago that uh, the brothers of Simeon and Levi forfeited their position in the family because of their brutal massacre of the Shechemites. Judah disqualifies himself in the next chapter, 38, because of a particularly evil sin that includes both prostitution and incest. So Jacob skips over these sons, and he puts a robe on Joseph, which designates him with a position of leadership in the family. There's an interesting cross-reference in the New Testament in John chapter 4. You'll remember John 4 is where Jesus has his encounter with the woman at the well, Jacob's well. And John says there in John 4 verse 5, some commentary that so he, Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis are we told that Jacob gave a field to Joseph, but apparently it was common knowledge 1,800 years later at the time of Christ that the field in Shechem that we saw Jacob purchase several weeks ago, he's given that to Joseph. Joseph has authority. Joseph has position in the family. And apparently he gave it to Joseph because he was the leader of the family. And this is where the dreams come into play particularly. Joseph was no doubt an extraordinarily gifted young man. He had particular giftedness in his God-given ability to interpret dreams, as we'll see as we study his life. But he was also particularly gifted intellectually, and he was gifted uh, and stood apart spiritually. And so the first dream was this dream of these sheaves or bundles of grain, his brother's bundles, bowing down to his bundle, which was standing upright. Uh, the interpretation of the dream was obvious to his brothers. Then he comes with, with his second dream, and he tells them of these sun and moon and the stars bowing down to Joseph. And his father, Jacob, even picks up and says, Hey, what are you trying to say here, son? The repetition of these dreams indicates the certainty that they will, in fact, come to pass. One of the things we'll see as we study Joseph is that the dreams come to him in pairs. They come to him two at a time. And, in fact, to all people, Pharaoh, the king of the world, he gives this principle of dream interpretation. Look what Joseph says to Pharaoh in chapter 41, verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This is a, an interpretive principle, so I don't know if it applies to us today. You have two dreams in a row. Well, it's fixed in God's mind. But Jacob certainly, or excuse me, Joseph certainly knew that. So God gives these dreams to Joseph really to validate what the coat represented. The coat represented his position of leadership and of honor, of royalty, that he would sit on a throne. And the point of the dreams is to underscore this reality. God is in charge of the whole thing. You see, we could come to the end of the story of Joseph, and we could say, well, Joseph experienced such prosperity and elevation and promotion, well, because he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. We could say, well, Joseph did so well because he was so gifted. He was so smart. He was so insightful, so wise. No, he was elevated to the position he was elevated to because God did it. And this is all underscored with the dreams. His prominence is a result of God. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So this robe, first of all, is a designated position. Joseph has this position from his father, Jacob, but more importantly, from God himself. But secondly, in our passage, we see in this robe a dismantled persecution. And I chose this word dismantle, especially because of what the word actually means. We usually use this term dismantle to talk about taking something apart that we've put together. I'm going to dismantle this wall or dismantle this engine. But that's not what the word dismantle actually means. A mantle is what? It's a coat. Put a mantle on somebody is a is a jacket, a robe. So dismantle is to remove a coat, to strip off a robe. And that's what we're going to see is this dismantled persecution, the the robe aroused the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. Now, because he had this designated position from his father, he was responsible for his father's affairs. He was an overseer of his father's enterprise. That's why we see, in fact, in verse 2, what he does. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, some have interpreted this as being something sinful in Joseph's life, that he's a tattletale. uh uh-huh. He's going to go tell on his brother's but I don't interpret it that way. Because he's been given this position, he has a responsibility to the owner of the enterprise to give a report, whether favorable or unfavorable, whether good or bad, as to what's happening in his affairs. And so he does just that. Moses doesn't, the inspired author of Genesis, doesn't seem to indicate positively or negatively uh, whether or not this was good or bad. But in the flow of the narrative, what we see is this, that Joseph is an unflinching truth-bearer. He tells the truth. Remember, God had given distinguishing grace to Joseph. He's remarkably gifted. He's gifted not just intellectually. He's gifted spiritually. And Jacob didn't love Joseph just because he was the child of his own old age and because he was the child of his beloved Rachel He loved Joseph and he gave him this position of authority because of his godliness, because of his uprightness, because he was a spiritually notable young man. Now, the structure of the sentence in verse 2 in the Hebrew indicates that he was pasturing the flock with his brothers, indicates he not only had authority over the flock, but he had authority over his brothers. He was the chief shepherd and he was presiding over his father's affairs. So by reporting back honestly, and truthfully, he was being a good, faithful overseer with integrity. In modern criminology, someone who knows about a crime that's been committed but doesn't report it to the authorities is known as an accessory after the fact. Joseph is a man of incredible integrity. He will have none of that because he's an unflinching truth-bearer. My take is that Joseph reports on his brothers, one, out of a concern for his father's affairs, two, out of a concern for the souls of his brothers, but thirdly, out of a concern for the glory of God. Meanwhile, the brothers hate him. They can't stand him. Verse 4 says, they do not speak peacefully to him. In the Hebrew, it uses the word shalom. That's the generic greeting of jews both then and today you meet another jewish person on the road they will greet you with shalom which simply means peace these brothers hated him so much they couldn't even say good morning to him the first of the day they couldn't say hello to him shalom they hated him and then they hated him even more because of his dreams Now, just as some commentators see him being a tattletale in verse 2, some commentators see him as being boastful or arrogant or pretentious by telling them of his dreams. But again, I don't interpret it that way. Moses doesn't imply anything negative with Joseph telling the dreams to his family. I just want you to imagine for a second being Joseph, and God has spoken to you in a remarkably vivid way through your dreams. Would you want to tell somebody about it? Of course you would. God has spoken to you about yourself and about your position and about your family. Do you think you would even innocently tell your family about this prophetic dream that's been given to you by God himself? And so I don't think there are evil intentions in Joseph. Even though his father did rebuke him because of the second dream, notice again verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. He held on to it because he knew deep down God was speaking to Joseph and God is speaking through Joseph. Joseph was ordained by God to be a leader. And the fact that his brothers do take the dream so seriously indicates they realize there's truthfulness in those dreams as well. He's not just this fanciful, dreaming adolescent, but he has a sobering premonition of the future. So they've grown to hate their brother, and they absolutely loathe that robe. They hate the sight of the robe. As the narrative described, at some point, Father Jacob tells Joseph, Go check on your brothers. Again, an indication he has this position of leadership and authority in his father's enterprise. They were supposed to be pasturing in Shechem, the field that he had bought earlier and had eventually given to Joseph. They're supposed to be pasturing there. He shows up, doesn't find them. He's wandering in the field. A man happens to come up. He finds out they're in Dothan, another 15 miles away. So Joseph finally finds his way to them. It would have been 60 fee mi- 65 miles excuse me, from the valley of Hebron where he started the journey by foot. And his brothers see him coming. This robe that designated his position of authority, this robe that showed his leadership in the family, his privileged position, this richly adorned and ornated robe that shimmered and shined in the sun. When they saw it at a distance, their blood began to boil. They hated him. They were like a pack of ravenous wolves that seize fresh prey. They're ready to pounce. And so they began to conspire together how to kill Joseph, how to throw him into a pit. Look at verse 19 again. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They can't even say his name. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. But Reuben, the oldest, starts to calm them down. He knows he's something responsible for the rest of the brothers. He says, Let's not shed his blood. Let's just throw him in this pit, this waterless cistern, presumably he'll die of hunger and thirst there let's not actually physically kill him and his intention was to come back later and to pull him out to rescue him so when joseph arrives to his brothers what do they do they attack him i imagine there are punches that are thrown there are kicks as he's on the ground and they rip this hated robe from his back they strip it off of him together they throw him in a pit to die of hunger to die of thirst the very brother who one day will give them food and drink. Later on in Genesis, when they're actually standing before Joseph and his identity is concealed to them, they're talking among themselves. As Joseph is dealing harshly with them, they remember, well, maybe this harshness we're experiencing is kind of a sowing and reaping. Like, notice what the brothers said to one another in Genesis 42. They said to one another, in truth... We are guilty concerning our brother in that we, one, saw the distress of his soul, and two, when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So that's not in the narrative of chapter 37, but we learn in chapter 42 that as they are throwing Joseph in the pit, he's crying out for mercy. Brothers, don't do this to me. He, I imagine him going name by name. Reuben, do not commit this evil. Simeon, we're flesh and blood. Levi, Judah, please have mercy on me. And as he's crying out for mercy, they have none. And his cries echoed in their ears for years. Every morning they woke up with the memory of what they had done to their brother. And as they're standing before him, unknown that they're standing before him, they're reminded again of this evil that they had done as they left him to die on the rocky floor of this waterless cistern. They stripped him of that hated robe. Interestingly, the Old Testament is in Hebrew, but there's a very famed Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And the Greek word used in the Septuagint here in Genesis 37 for stripped is also used in Matthew 27. Notice what the Bible says there. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him. Just as Joseph was stripped in a vile act of abuse and violence, friends, the greater Joseph, Jesus, was stripped in a vile act of abuse and violence. And there lies tattered and torn on the ground the robe the robe of destiny, the robe of royalty, the robe of position, the robe that portrayed and designated him in a dismantled persecution. But thirdly, I want you to see what happens to this robe. It ends up, thirdly, a desecrated pretense. A desecrated pretense. Interestingly, they don't, in fact, leave Joseph to die in the pit like they had originally planned. Providentially, they were herding their sheep in Dothan. Dothan happened to be at the crossroads of a major trade route between Syria and Egypt. And they, they're sitting around eating, I presume, by the campfire, and they see in a the distance these Ishmaelites traveling from Syria, and they're carrying these goods. And one of them speaks up, Judah, and says, hey, you know, what profit is it to us if he just starves to death in that pit? Why don't we make a little money on him? So they pull him out of the pit, and for a slave price, they sell him to these Ishmaelites who are traveling by. And so now Joseph, who begins the day as a robed royal prince, is now just a piece of human chattel, tethered to a camel, his hands no doubt bound as he walked towards the Nile. So what happens to the coat? What happens to the robe of many colors. Verse 31 again tells us, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. This robe of royalty, this robe of designation is now desecrated with blood. They intended it to be evidence to their father of a violent attack from a wild animal. So they take the bloody coat back to their father and say, uh, this we have found, can you tell us if it's your son's or not? They don't even say our brother's, is this your son's coat? This is a pretense, this is a deception, this is a ruse. It appears to be, again, clear evidence of his being killed. Now does this sound at all familiar to you? A son killing a goat so that he might deceive his father. It's exactly what Jacob did to blind Isaac. And now Jacob is reaping what he has sown, and his sons come and they kill a goat and use the remains to deceive their father. But Jacob's heart is broken. Verse 33, look at it, it is so moving. It says, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now, in the Hebrew, the word Joseph is the last word of the sentence. A fierce animal has devoured him without doubt, torn him to pieces. Joseph, his beloved son, is dead. That's the end of the robe. This extraordinary robe, which signified Joseph's unique position in the family with the father, is now destroyed, lied, bloodied and tattered and torn in a heap on the ground at his feet. As we close this morning, I want to close by asking a question. What is God doing in all of this? What is God doing in all this? You know, there's oftentimes experiences and hardships we go through, and we can even look at the world in which we live today, here in our country, that is upside down, topsy-turvy, What is God doing in all this? We go through hardships. And we know, we believe, God, you are all-powerful. We know and we believe, God, you are all-loving, you are all-good. But in the midst of the hardship, and I can just imagine, as Joseph is bound, tethered to a camel, trudging along through the desert to Egypt, he had to ask, God, are you still omnipotent? God, are you still omnibenevolent? What are you doing, God? With hindsight, we can see exactly what God is doing here. And I just want to point out three things for us as we close. First of all, God is making provision for rescue. Through the abuse of Joseph and his selling into slavery, God is making provision for rescue. We're familiar with how the story ends Because Joseph was sold into slavery and taken into Egypt, he would eventually be in a position where he could provide food and sustenance and salvation and rescue not only to those who have abused him, but to all the known world. God is, through suffering, rescuing his people. Does that sound familiar? Secondly, God is making provision for repentance. God is laying the foundation for his brothers to repent, for their conversion. God allows them to do this awful deed, this wicked abuse, so that they will become keenly aware of their own personal sinfulness, so that they will be moved to repentance and confession before God. God uses Joseph's pain in their life, which would be incredibly important as they are the founding of the 12 tribes of Israel. But thirdly, and most importantly, what is God doing in all this? God is making provision for a redeemer. God again had promised Joseph's great grandfather, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And no doubt Joseph partially fulfills that promise in the Abrahamic covenant. But Joseph, as a redeemer, is pointing forward to a greater Redeemer. This is the main point of Genesis 37. This is the main point of the Bible. It points us to Jesus. You see, 1,800 years later, standing before the Sanhedrin would be one Christian named Stephen. Stephen is standing before the very court, the high court of Israel that condemned Jesus to die. He's there giving testimony about his faith in Christ. And he begins to recount to these religious elites who know their Jewish history, the history of Israel. And as he recounts it to them, he reminds them this has been the pattern throughout your history. God sends a deliverer, you kill them. God sends them a deliverer, you kill them. And he even presents to them Joseph. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him here's what this hint in the new testament is telling us about the joseph is the old testament he is a type of christ he's a prefigurement of jesus and the parallels of joseph to jesus are remarkable again we're going to conclude this series december 13th and i've already have, have a working title for the final sermon just before christmas and it's this jesus in joseph just in this chapter the the parallels are remarkable You have a son who is the favored son of the father. You have a son who is marked out specifically by the father for preeminence. You have a son who's hated by his brethren. He was sent to by the father. I mean, as Joseph walks towards his brothers there in Dothan, you can almost hear the narration of John one eleven. He came to his own people, but his own people received him not. This son was violently attacked. This son was stripped, his robe torn from him, and sold for a slave price. This son separated from the Father through a bloody death. This son raised up from the pit, from the grave, so that he might provide salvation to not only his brethren, but to all the nations of the earth. That includes the 59 unreached people groups in Southeast Asia. But here's another parallel. Listen. In the same way his brothers would eventually come face to face with the one they left for dead, so too, every abuser of Jesus, those members of the Sanhedrin that condemned him to death, those Roman soldiers that punched him in the face and plucked his beard, the cowardly Pilate, they will all stand face to face before Jesus. And just like the brothers of Joseph knelt down in terror, submitting to his authority, every knee will bow before Jesus. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morning, let me ask you a question. How are we treating the Son the Father has sent to us? How are we regarding Him that the Father has provided? Are we rejecting Him, His commands, His decrees, or are we receiving Him? Are we welcoming him or not? Are we, even as those who are professing Christians, are we humiliating our Savior with our lives or are we honoring him in the way we live and speak in this world that is so lost? When we receive the one who is rejected, when we welcome the one who is disrobed, Stripped on our behalf. What happens to us? Here's what happens He clothes us with garments of salvation, He covers us with robes of righteousness. I love the way the prophet Isaiah put it, and with this I'll close. Isaiah says in Isaiah 61:10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with what? The robe. From head to toe, the robe of righteousness. Jesus, what a Savior you are. And that leads to my last thought. Because Jesus, the greater Joseph, was willingly stripped of his robe of royalty, all who trust in him will be robed in his righteousness. Let's go to this Jesus in prayer.